Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to season six, episode four of Cross Section. My name is Alicia and I will be your host steering you through this week's news stories and where our Christian faith encourages us to act say and do differently. Today I'm joined by cross-section regular Peter Linus. Welcome Peter. Good to be here. And we have a special guest appearance from the wonderful, joyful and ultra extrovert Phil. (laughs) Welcome Phil. You've missold me there. I'm actually a closet introvert. No, don't say that. <laughs> but it's brilliant to be with you. This is this is a real like this is a, a massive uh, fulfillment of a dream for me as a uh, regular cross section listener. So thank you for the opportunity. On a scale of one to five, five being super nervous. What's your number? Uh, less nervous because it's a morning at time of recording. So I'm a I'm a it's five really nervous. I'm a, I'm three. We're in the middle. Nice. So we are in the same room uh, at our staff conference at Highley again. Uh, so. Uh, to open for our guests, our listeners. Phil, what has been your favourite cross-section? In fact, do you even listen to it? Yeah, I properly do. You are my you my go-to uh, podcast when I do the school run. So fairly frequently, I will uh, be on my way to do the school run to pick up my kids from school. And it's the perfect length. Um, although my cross-section confession is um, that I sometimes have to skip through uh, stories uh, to get to my favourite one uh, because the school run isn't quite long enough to listen to the whole podcast before I pick up my kids. Uh-huh. I'll say that's a note to you and I, Peter, to be succinct and to talk less. <laughs> we'll try. No promises. We shall try. For some of our listeners who don't know Bill, your job title is Evangelism and Missiologist Senior Specialist. I'll do. Please demystify for our listener. What does that mean? <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> what do you do, Phil? So, uh, so working for the Evangelical Alliance, we are about together making Jesus known. So, uh, uh, my my heart is to see the UK church equipped and inspired to be good news. Uh, so I do that uh, through sharing good news, but also equipping and inspiring Christians to be able to do that. But also my missiologist, so I study how people come to faith and try and help the UK church make the most of those pathways. Uh, so that's my job. It's brilliant. Love it. Brilliant indeed. So you have a passion for faith, passion for how people come to faith. Yeah. You're also an author, written two books, your yeah. most recent, The Best of Friends, Choose Wisely, Care Well. You read it, Peter. I have. What's your favourite chapter? Well, I don't know the chapter number because I we pulled some material from it for our being human book, not to cross plug. But, <laughs> but Phil's thoughts on friendship and some of those key drivers around friendship because relationships are so important, connections so important. So we actually borrowed some content from Phil on a part of the book that ultimately got cut. <laughs> it's devastating to us, but we're going to be putting it on the website. There's still enough emphasis in being human on connections, so I'm I'm happy, buddy. Good. I did indeed write it, read it. My favourite chapter is five, where three, Jesus had an inner circle. Yeah. And I think that challenge of how do you invest in your core? Yeah. It came at a timely, obviously, in a great book. Read or pre-order the Being Human book, seeing as he plugged it five minutes ago, that's uh, coming out next week, <laughs> to the cross-section podcast, as you're our guest. Mm. Bill, why don't you share a new story that's caught your attention this week? 
So uh, I'm going to raise the bar with a bit of VAR uh, today. And uh, so probably at the weekend, the most controversial moment in the history of uh, VAR in the Premier League since its introduction in 2019-2020. So in the game involving Tottenham Hotspur and Liverpool, uh, Liverpool with down to 10 men, and then Luis Diaz scores. On the pitch, it's ruled offside. The lines and flag goes up, but of course goes to be checked on VAR. And... There was a little bit of human error in the interaction with technology, uh, let's say, where the goal should have stood uh, on, on the pitch. But the, the, the words check complete were sent over the airwaves to the on-field team. And what they thought what they were saying when they said a check complete, they were saying, actually, the goal's onside, so give the goal. But they forgot and forgot about the on-field the on decision. So instead of saying check complete for the goal being given, they actually uh, ruled out a perfectly good goal. So since then, since the weekend, there has been a huge range of debate as to whether the match should be even be replayed because this interaction between technology and uh, human interaction has gone really wrong. And the promises that were made when VAR first came in were that this would completely rule out situations like this, that we would get absolute fairness and justice, cause drivers within within us as human beings, a God-given desire for justice. But it got me really thinking about this kind of, this interaction that we have with technology. Could Because for me, VAR has made football worse. We were told it would make it better, it would give certainty. And this is a great example of it not, because it's run by good old-fashioned human, fragile, broken human beings. And I think we it's a good, uh, good example of the fact that just because something can do something with technology doesn't mean that it should and i think one of the th things we have to do as christians is judge just because technology is capable of doing something does that mean that we should always engage with it so rel relates to areas like ai like social media and it's a it's a fascinating debate so profound i think my initial reaction to the whole saga because i did watch the game and as an arsenal fan i was so Liverpool on in the yeah. in demise. Are you a Liverpool fan? Yes, diehard Liverpool fan. You can't name any of the players. <laughs> well, uh, I was hoping that Tottenham uh, would lose. I watched it and I was like, I'm sure that's offside. Mm. Onside, sorry. Yeah. I can't. But then the judgment, I was like, the technology must be right because of use of technology. And I felt my eyes had deceived me. So, I, I, I mean, do you think Liverpool should have a rematch as a no, but I would like to point out that in another sport that's also being played at the moment, the video technology works really well. Yeah. Like in rugby, it seems it has solved lots of problems. It seems to work really efficiently. And I heard the football guys all commenting on this. Uh, rugby does seem to have the edge on this. Football seems to struggle more. And I suppose the argument here is the technology was right. The technology ruled it yeah. on side straight away. The problem was the human beings. What we need to do is get rid of human beings, Phil. Not the technology. It's the guy who got I me. Mean, the, the audio recording is comical yeah. in the moment. Like he calls it wrong. And the, it's the little, like, like the operator beside is going, uh, mate, I think that's wrong. Uh, do something. No, 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 you're wrong. And he's like, oh, it's too late in the end. It's yeah. like, oh dear. But for me, it's about, for me, it's about sports, about moments. And I think what's happened with VAR is we've lost the moments of joy because it used to be a goal goes in, either the linesman's flag up or it isn't, and you could let yourself go with the joy and the you know ecstasy of a of a moment. But now you you, you people aren't doing that in the same way because they're holding themselves back because they've learned that it might be it might be ruled out. And so I think do it just because we can do something with technology. Does that mean that we should, despite the negatives, by the challenges, there's no going back, and that's another lesson. 
around technology sometimes but when you unleash the beast you then can't then you can't then pull it back in and put the uh put the proverbial back in the bottle well the amish are great on this on the technology they're not because they're sometimes perceived as kind of luddites and anti-technology but they are just much slower adopters they'll look at any piece of technology and say is it yeah. useful and does it help us as a community before they'll adopt it whereas we tend to rush in and then as you say it's really hard to go back I just think VAR is an interesting example because I think it works better in some other spaces. I think football's experience with it is really bad. Yeah. And then it does go to the justice point because we saw so many decisions that were potentially bad. Yeah. And this was supposed to correct it. And in this case, basically the technology did correct it and get it right. And then the human being got it wrong again. The fallen nature of us all in this moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and there's nothing you can do about the human. Like, oh. You can improve the technology all you like, but we're all, we're all going to make mistakes. Well, I'm hoping VAR works this weekend as we're playing Man City and we need the win. So, yeah, you might need VAR. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll need more than VAR. <laughs> so transitioning from VAR to politics. So if you have not been following the news, it's been a Tory party conference in Manchester. There's been a huge build-up from the last week in terms of there's been doctor strikes, there has been what will or will not the Home Secretary say follow online to, to see what she did say and her reaction last week to the podcast on that. Would there be backbench MPs that would be breaking ranks and criticising the party's record in government? But I want to start with themes and kind of threads and sound bites from Rishi Sunak's um, speech. He said things that Westminster is broken and then went on to say that people are exhausted by politics in his opening preamble, in his introduction. Coming to you first, Peter, what do you think the Prime Minister meant that Westminster is broken. And do you agree that the general public are exhausted by politics? Yes. I mean, to, so is Westminster broken? I mean, if the Prime Minister's saying it, that's certainly indicative. There is a feeling, I think, from a lot of people that they're deeply frustrated by it. It doesn't seem to work. Legislation either gets lost, gets, you know, doesn't go through, promises are made and then they're not fulfilled. And that's even with a, a clear majority. Um whichever side of the Brexit debate everybody's on it doesn't it, neither side are happy with the outcomes on that so it feels like people voted for something or against something and we've had a bit of a fudge and and it feels like there are just frustrations at every level and then that's Westminster and then local government and I mean I say this as somebody who comes from a place in the United Kingdom that doesn't have any government Westminster probably is our only default form of government and that's frustrating for us mm. people in Scotland are frustrated about what's happening there and where devolution is and similarly in Wales We've seen the 20 mile an hour speed limit last week. One of the few things maybe in Wales that has uh, gone through as a distinctive. I think not just Westminster. I think in each of the regional assemblies too, there is frustration that's broken. And people are exhausted. MPs that we talk to are exhausted. MLAs, MSPs, representatives and the various things. I mean, it is unsustainable, the kind of level of critique, feedback, the online that they get. But everybody, I think, around the process, people voting, just like there's an apathy. We're, we're telling people you need to vote. And I absolutely believe that even I, as somebody totally interested in this area, have become less interested in reading political stories and struggle with the voting right now. I'm just like, I'm not sure who remotely represents what I think is a good vision for society at this moment. It, it, I, I find it hard and exhausting. And I like this area and I work in this area. So most people I talk to feel exhausted by it. I, I don't know about you, but I mean, that's my experience and you're in and around it more than I am. No, I think it, it's a fair reflection to say that people are exhausted they probably can they have confidence not just in the system but in people political leaders people with responsibility to actually to say and do what they 
Thomas both in their manifesto and what you expect of public figures. Coming to you, Phil, mm. what are your thoughts? Do you think people are interested in the conversations, friendships? Yeah, and I think I think the challenge is that it's only going to get worse over the next eight, 18 months as a as a as a <laughs> election. Is that a prophetic idea from Phil? Because I think I think what I've observed in the kind of political cycle is that governments become really targeted in kind of targeting self-interest in terms of people voting for them. And I think one of the challenges we face as Christians is that I'm not sure we should always vote in, in terms of self-interest, but but for but for those around us. So my context is live on a council estate in Birmingham and even living incarnationally as part of that community, I forget the levels of poverty even within where I live. And so every coming up coming up to Christmas, we will go around and deliver a Christmas card to every home in our parish. And and you realise that the, the the challenges that some people face in the places that you that you see in the people and people's lives, and and the, uh, the challenge with the the political narrative so often is we are so driven towards the individualistic call to vote a certain way that benefits us, and that for me how I vote might not be the best to vote for those around me in my community, and I think the I think so I, I really struggle as, a, as someone who's so interested in community and friendship this drive towards individualism in our society uh, uh, and, and that that for me turns me off in terms of politics because I, I I believe in a bigger vision for that and I think the kingdom of God's a bigger vision for that and I think as Christians we need to speak up on behalf of those who have no voice and that's part of what we do as the Evangelical Alliance but I think I, I so that's my kind of weariness with politics and the self-interest and the and the playing into that individualistic narrative within our world and we're seeing that Globally, that question been asked about democracy, been asked in the states, it's been asked in Spain. They they have a sort of hung government, I think, still as I understand it. France, Germany, like lots of places, and people are writing articles and asking a fundamental question: democracy requires accountability and trust, and that is no longer there. And so people are asking a much more fundamental question: is can this whole system that so much of the West is based on actually survive the next? You know, not just 18 months, but probably in the next few years, there's going to be massive challenges around that. And the US election is going to be key in that. We're going to have the UK election. That's going to raise massive questions in it too. And they are deeply profound because nobody, basically the, the trust is absolutely broken and democracy actually relies upon trust around connection relationships, around people being responsible and, and acting in that way. And that's no longer the case. Absolutely. And something that we are already working on in the advocacy team is how does the church engage well during the general election campaign? How can we speak up for those uh, in our community that have kind of lost a sense of place within society and are margins on the fringes of that? And how can we speak up for the nature and growth and the role of the evangelical church? So do stay tuned for that as we'll be talking more about that. But transitioning into another theme that was in Rishi's speech that you kind of picked up in your intro, that sense of promises that are being made and somewhat broken. The most notable uh, promise seemingly broken is the uh, ending, the scrapping of HS2 between Manchester to Birmingham. So far, it's been a commitment that's been around since 2019, a project where so far 24.7 billion has been spent, but the majority of that 22 billion has been from Birmingham to London. And so the promise of kind of connecting the North with the South, creating great opportunity has been somewhat sidelined. Uh, and now the government has made a commitment to that. However, in his speech, Rishi said that 36 billion, that which was promised, for the spending of Manchester to Birmingham would now be spent on the North Network uh, and that will be connecting North and the Midlands 
coming back to you for someone who does live in the Netherlands, is that the right decision <laughs> to scrap? Or should he honour his commitments that he made and the party made? I don't know. <laughs> we will be in a breath. I guess I get. I think that people should be allowed to change their mind, and so I think sometimes circumstances change. So I sympathise with that. With uh, that. With the rationale behind the decision. Um, I, if I'm honest, uh, as a as a commuter from Birmingham to London, I'm I'm also not. I'm not sure with our obsession as a world with speed. And just because, again, it's back to the technology of AR, isn't it? Just because something can be done, it should be done. And I think we are obsessed with with doing things quickly and and the new. And I think there is beauty in the old and the slow. And so for me, as as a commuter, I actually enjoy the hour and a half from Birmingham. I enjoy as as I was introvert as, as I was introduced as an extrovert. My introvert time on the trains really, I love it. But, I thought you were talking about your football when you talked about the old and the slow there. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, that's that really is my, my football, my middle-aged body. But but I think, as I say, so I'm not. So I, I understand the, the the kind of the 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 benefit it could be to cities in the north. But I think I think we again we just need to look at the rationale behind some of these decisions. But should people should people be allowed to change their mind? Yeah, they should. Just to remind you again, a response from somebody in Birmingham. Yeah. He's got he's got the link, like not the bit further. Yeah, 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 yeah. A Manchester correspondent might have a different view on this conversation. <laughs> All I'm saying is, I, I probably wouldn't. You know, when HSD comes in, I'm not convinced I'll be using it because it's you know 45 minutes. Okay. Wow. Do you note that it was someone from Birmingham that did say that? Normally, they'd expect that from someone living in the M25. Peter, you're a commuter. What are your thoughts? Is that the right decision? <laughs> well, spending on trains in London is something like £6,000 per head. And in Northern Ireland, it's something like £200 uh, per head of population. So there is a disproportionate spend in London. Everything's orientated towards London again. So this was all about really getting people into London. I mean, has not at work from home has changed some things. I think that's right. I think the London orientation of everything is one of the problems that we have in the UK. Everything is centred around basically getting people and money and everything to flow towards the centre. No, the argument they're making is, oh, no, it's helping things go back out again. It's not really. It's all about how quickly you can get workers into the centre. And so I do think there are profound questions. And the thing is, that wasn't one of Rishi's, Rishi's five pledges. He, what he did talk about, if you like, things he's failed on are inflation, are on cutting NHS waiting lists, on stopping the small boats. Whether you agree or disagree with his pledges, he made these other five. The only thing it was relating to is getting debt down. And in one sense, this was a massive future spend. And it was borrowing in the future. And as costs have risen and as work habits have changed, I think the cost benefit analysis on this project has changed a little bit. So I am concerned about future planning, about capital and expenditures as a, as a country. How are we investing in the future and thinking what it looks like? Is this the right project? Big question mark. I think things like the NHS are much higher up people's priorities right now. And that's arguably much more fundamentally broken. And there's much less of a kind of idea as to what to do about it. If you're a listener living in the North, do keep contact us at crosssection.org at ea.org. Actually, that's not it. Cross.section at ea.org to let us know your views. Is cutting HS2 the right policy? A final contribution and conversation around Rishi's speech at the party conference this week has been how he's tried to pitch himself and position himself as the change candidate. 
that he is not Liz Truss, that he is not Boris Johnson, that he is not even David Cameron, and that he's prepared to scrap and wipe away some of their legacies, as you'll see in the news, they've been the most outspoken in some of the direction uh, of this. Peter, is that right for Rishi to position himself as the change candidate? Is that a viable position? Well, if you're his strategist and advisor, I'd say that's what you have to do. These were unsuccessful in many ways. Like Boris is an, an intriguing, shall we say, in terms of he was successful and won an election. But I think you have to, it's 13 years into uh, a current conservative government and people are fed up with it. So they're going to vote for change in some shape or form. So they're either going to vote for the other party or you've got to pitch yourself as the change candidate. Now, is that a legitimate claim? That's what we've yet to see. Rishi is fairly new and, and he has now set out a stall. Up to now, he's been kind of, it's business as usual. And he said, OK, I'm going to tell you what I stand for. Because he's seen as a kind of managerial candidate in a way, uh, you know, an effective manager. But what does he really stand for? So, OK, he's put out a stall. Whether he can get away with that, I have no idea, like whether that will work with the electorate and whether he can actually deliver on change. But at least now we know what Rishi's about. But it also goes to politics. Like nobody was there. This conference felt flat. You know, the end of us were there, but the vibe has been, it's been flat again. People aren't interested. And even are people interested in the speech and what he's saying? Do people even care what politicians say anymore? To a large degree, it doesn't feel like they're voting on what they say or even the policies they announce. It's a kind of sentiment and a feeling idea of where we are rather than, well, I looked at those four policies and I think that'll be helpful for me or my community or for the people I love, whatever it is. I don't even think people are at that level because they don't either read them or believe them to be true. And as Christians, Sometimes we can also feel somewhat exhausted by the whole kind of political arena, political scene, all that's going on within our local community and national politics. Coming to you, Phil, and then we'll come to you, Peter. How, as Christians, do we remain engaged in both the cultural and political moment and not grow cynical? Tips, advice for that. I think uh, for me, as as you possibly can predict with an answer but I think it's about remaining in community and relating remaining in relationship and I think understanding trying to understand people's lives who are different from us and I think I think one of the things that I've been captivated by that I think we model brilliantly as the church is, is, is we are we are just about the only body left in society where there's people of different wealth backgrounds different ethnicities different stories different ages and I think the more that we understand and can listen within people's lives and not get siloed into monocultural um, people groups, I think I think that that will really help us develop a picture of kind of who, who to vote for and engage in politics. Because I think it, ultimately the decisions made at those levels it, it affects all of the, all of those people. And so I think being really good friends, being really connected within our local churches, understanding those issues, and then asking God for wisdom within that. Because I think one of the challenges I find around kind of any kind of voting moment is you're voting for your local MP. And so you're looking for someone to represent you locally, but you're also voting ultimately for the person who will become the, the prime minister. And so you kind of look looking at the character of the person you want to lead the country, but then you're also looking at the political party and their values. It's a really difficult mix. So we desperately need that wisdom, I think, in terms of knowing who to vote for. But And, and I think believing the best in people as well. You know, I, I think kind of just wanting wanting to be Christ-like in the way we look at people and not always. I think politics can be really cynical in looking to always look for the worst. But I think staying connected with local communities is critical. Uh, for me, go local. I mean, government works at so many levels. So like, I mean, it's right down to the school board, your local council, your local MP, as you were saying, Phil. It's so much easier on a local level to relate to people, to engage, to pray for, to get alongside, to come up with ideas. 
and then be solutions oriented. It's easy to be critical. We can all see the problem usually in a situation. But bottom line is they have to make decisions with a limited amount of money, a limited amount of support, a limited amount of levers that they can actually access. So bring solutions and say, here's what we can do as a local church. Here's how I can come alongside you. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to thank you for some of the stuff you are doing. These guys are, people are out most evenings, most weekends doing stuff. Might not always agree with what they're doing, but they are deeply committed. Just chatting to one of our colleagues who's involved in politics. Like this is a lot of extra time given to this and so how do we get alongside? How do we support? At a local level, it's so much easier because it's a real person right in front of you rather than the abstract figure on the TV. It's very easy to kind of get frustrated and maybe point the finger at the all the time. And we're at staff conference and thinking about um, what Manoj was speaking yesterday, who's the Evangelical Lunch Board Chair. He gave a kind of a talk and a message and the importance of looking at the horizon, catching the vision. Uh, and for Christians, the vision is always centered around person of Jesus, his kingdom and his desire to bring unity amongst difference, bringing in. So I love what you were saying there, Phil, about the need to be community focused and crossing lines uh, and seeking to serve those that are beyond our own personal needs. So I love that as an encouragement. You're listening to the Evangelical Alliance podcast cross section. Thank you for joining us. You continue to follow us on Twitter at EAUK News or Instagram the Evangelical Alliance, or if you have questions, queries, or a different perspective on what has been shared on this episode, why not email us at cross.section at eauk.org. We would love to bring that story into a future episode. So moving on to our final story, uh, a controversial story that has taken place over the last week. It involves GB News. It involves Lawrence Fox. It involves <laughs> Calvin Robertson. And nice uncontroversial place to finish. Exactly. Uh, and I titled it Free Speech Martyr Question Mark. So in the last week or so, there was a show, an episode, uh, Dan Wharton, uh, last week, a conversation between him and Lawrence Fox regarding fellow GB News journalist Ava Evans. And Lawrence Fox, in his language, I think it's fair to say, although I won't repeat, was somewhat demeaning to her as a person, as a female, disrespecting uh, and alluding to uh, sexual practice, uh, which was awkward to listen, but yet there was comments. Naturally, thousands of complaints on Ofcom, um, immediate response of suspension but a week on there has been two sackings out of Calvin Robertson and Lawrence Fox and what I found most intriguing is particularly Calvin Robertson's position and stance following the sacking um, from GB News has been that although he himself would not use the language and words and reference of speaking about um, Ava Evans he still defends the show's right to speak uh free speech and to offend and so coming to you peace what are your reflections on the saga and is there ever a line when it comes to free speech oh yes there is a line on free speech but but there's and context is so important you've got the the kind of extreme line you can't shout fire in the crowded theater and cause carnage and commotion there's there's always a limit where you're um, inciting or bringing harm to other people uh, in that very clear way but then you've got the context. I mean, there's two different things. Lawrence Fox and Calvin Robinson are two different characters to me. One of those people appears with a dog collar on the show. You know, Calvin Robinson, that's a very different bar. I was like, yeah, I defend the right of a lot of people to say things I disagree with, but not on TV and not that. That TV has its own threshold and standard. 
So can he say the sort of comments he made in the privacy of his own home? Yeah, I think they they were shocking comments. They were now there was some context where this was a line, a kind of that she had used and he was responding, but it's a misogynistic comment and it was inappropriate and it shouldn't be on a TV show. And Calvin Rums, I don't understand why he's defending it. That's bizarre to me. But I mean, Fox has also been fired. Here's another kind of free speech moment where he has indicated on Twitter, I saw him do it when he that that there's money being put in a DIY store. He knew somebody said, I put thousands of pounds there. And if you're going to get equipment to cut down these cameras in London, then you can go and get it free out of this store. This, this person's prepared to pay for it. That's straightforward incitement to violence. And he has been arrested just for that. Again, is he free to say that? Well, yes, but he has contravened the law that limits speech to incite people to commit these acts of violence. That's also right. So I am a pretty strong advocate for free speech. But as Christians, and there's my chance to Calvin, I don't want to get the absolute version of that. I want the freedom to be able to share about my faith and to talk about that freely and openly. I don't try and offend people. Other people do have the right to do that. Offence is not the line in the sand for me. So that's where the difference comes. Lawrence Fox is entitled to go and do that, and I would support his right to a larger degree maybe than some other people, not on a TV show, and he should be taken off for that. That's not appropriate for them. But we as Christians are trying to carve out something radically different than this moment. So our holding to free speech is very different than somebody else's. And that's what gets this debate is more complicated and more nuanced than I think a lot of people do. Uh, for me, oh, sorry for coming, but like I do think there's a broader fear narrative out there that people are speaking into and there are people that are cultivating that. And so people like Lawrence Fox and others, I feel we're pushing into that space. I see Christian organizations do it too. There's an easy way to do that. The world's really bad. We're all very fearful. Come and you know rally with us and we'll defend you and we'll help you. So, well, it's just not a biblical perspective at this moment. We are told to fear not. We're told not to be afraid. We have not been given a spirit of fear. We are to fear God. That's the only thing we fear in a sense of awe and reverence and wonder. But outside of that, there is no place for fear in our lives of what's going on. The world is chaotic. The world is carnage out there. I don't know how people navigate it without faith, but for us, we are the people with love and hope. So I'm looking, where can I use my free speech to articulate that, not this defensive fear stuff? And I think we as Christians need to seriously sit down and think about how we're narrating some of what's going on at this moment. It's difficult. But kids in school are not naive to some of the challenges, problems, but we have to do something fundamentally different. We did not see Jesus articulate a narrative of fear in this moment. It's always a hope-oriented direction of travel. So we've got to do a better job. And so my critique in this moment, to circle that background, be much stronger on Calvin saying, hold on, what are you doing on there representing God in this moment and narrating the way you are? I have a problem with that. I think there's, another, there's a friendship angle here as well, in the sense that my understanding is that Calvin and Lawrence are friends. And I think sometimes great friendship isn't just sticking up for your mate, even if you think you've done something wrong. So we don't know. But my hope is that Calvin, if he thinks what Lawrence said, is abhorrent, which I think it is, you know, has, has he, has he, you know, you admire in some ways the friendship of sticking up for your mate and kind of, you know, he shouldn't be sacked, he's just speaking up for free speech, we both believe in this. But at the same time, friendship is, friendship goes further to correct, you know, and, and lovingly come alongside your friend and go, that wasn't very Christ-like. Because I even I understand that you had, Lawrence has some kind of Christian values as well. And so to so to say to your friend that that really wasn't kind, that wasn't Christ-like. And, and sometimes as Christians, we have, we hold that tension of wanting to stand up for the things we believe, but at the same time saying to our friends when they get things wrong, you, you gently, you're out of line there and, and, and I encourage you to be more Christ-like. And bringing the conversation into land, we talk about, or as heard, uh, as I know Peter mentioned about fence, 
And it's often mentioned that the teachings of Jesus and particularly the gospel offends. Coming to you, Phil, as you're a guest to kind of close out, what do you think maybe some of Jesus's teachings or sayings that would be seen offensive mm. said right, but yet would be kind of cancelled in today's culture? Yeah, wow. And how do we as Christians potentially navigate that? And it's interesting, interesting, isn't it? Because I guess some some of those statements were probably very controversial back then, but it would be less so now. So the stuff that Jesus said about children and and women probably would have been, you know, in a time when you know women were lucky to be uh, seen, seen and seen and heard, you know, in that in that kind of cultural uh, time. But at the same time, you know, there's some things today. So I think what Jesus said about marriage, you know, for this reason, uh, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. You know, we live in a world where you know, sex is seen to be to be most people would would have sex before they're married. Uh, that marriage can be has been kind of completely re- re- redefined by society. Jesus and marriage has been a man and a woman, and and sex is to be kept with inside marriage. That that in our time, very offensive, and and also the absolute statements in a pluralistic postmodern world where you find your truth within. For Jesus to say, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." You know, for some, you know, are, are we moving into a world where where that could be regarded as hate speech? You know, declaring one option. Uh, I, it's uh, Jesus. If it's not already offensive, it, I think in the years ahead it might be, because we're not. We're the whole whole world is is geared towards pluralism, and and you find your truth within Jesus saying, "I am the truth." That possibly very offensive to some. It is, and I just love how you navigated different themes of marriage, truth. Uh, and children uh, and women and I think something as a takeaway in what Peter was saying in that these are for us as Christians biblical convictions that should inform the way we live personally relationally and how we speak out into the community but there's a time and a place Mm. and a posture and a way of engaging in that and sometimes articulating that to be just purely right isn't also the motive um, the right thing uh, going forward so I just want to leave uh, a passage of scripture with our listeners but maybe you in the coming days and weeks to kind of reflect about how you engage both on social media and what you say in the public space the first one is Colossians 4 6 it says let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person and the second is Titus 2 8 where it says sound in speech which is beyond reproach reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. That balance, that tension of being mindful of what we say with our words, for grace is the measurement of how we should speak. So thank you, Phil, for joining this episode. Great contribution. Thank you as ever, Mr. Crusalinus, for your words of wisdom and encouragement. You've been listening to Cross Section Podcasts and look forward to you joining us next week. Take care. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.